Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for December 11th, 2018. We've got an interview again today. Exciting, exciting. Uh, Not just any interview, but another returning champion. Uh, Branko Marcetic is a staff writer at Jacobin. Uh, He's been on the program before uh, to talk about Donald Trump's big summer visit to NATO and his summit with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. Uh, You may remember that episode from a few months back. Uh, He writes frequently about things that are happening in Europe, and so I think he is the right person for us to talk to about the big thing that's happening in Europe right now, apart from the collapse of Brexit, which we may mention, I guess, uh, in passing. But uh, apart from that, the big thing that's happening is, of course, the Yellow Vest protests in France, uh, where French President Emmanuel Macron has finally used up whatever shreds of goodwill he had remaining. His approval rating, which was already dismal, uh, is now down in the low 20s or maybe even lower, depending on the opinion survey you you read. Uh, And people seem to be fed up with basically center-right neoliberal austerity. Uh, The final straw has been uh, a proposed increase on fuel taxes, gas tax, electricity, uh, to tamp down demand for, you know, fossil fuel use and do a good deed for the environment. Uh, We'll talk about why this is the wrong idea for uh, doing anything about carbon emissions in part of the interview. But um, what we're going to focus on more than that is the overall package of immiseration that Emmanuel Macron has foisted upon the French people uh, that has led us to this point where uh, the gas tax was sort of not a trigger in itself, more like the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, and we'll so we'll talk about what Macron's agenda has been. Uh, We'll talk about why it has failed. We'll talk about why it is uh, more likely, far more likely that his agenda is going to lead to an upsurge in the far right in France. Uh, Macron has been hailed as the hero of the liberal world order by many in many quarters as the guy who stood up to Marine Le Pen in the 2017 French election. Uh, And we're going to talk about why what he's doing right now when he has been doing for the last year and a half or so uh, has actually probably strengthened the far right in Europe far more than uh, doing anything to weaken it. Uh, As you can tell, I'm very biased on this, uh, so this is not going to be an even-handed treatment of President Macron's or President Jupiter, as you will, uh, of his performance in office. It is instead going to be uh, a lengthy session where I think we will have very little good to say about him, uh, in contrast with what you often see in the the U.S. media, at least. Uh, So with that, uh, I'm going to get Branko on here and we will begin the interview. So I'm here with Branko Marcetic from Jacobin. Uh, Branko, thank you for being on the show for the second time. Uh, it's great to have you back. No, thanks for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure. Uh, so we are going to talk about Emmanuel Macron uh, <laughs> and his his great adventures of the last couple of weeks in France. Uh, I, I thought of you because uh, you wrote an article 
last year, not long after he was elected, not long after Macron was elected, called Emmanuel Macron is not your friend uh, that was in Jacobin. And I was very upset because I thought he was my friend. Uh, <laughs> but I think you were right. <laughs> uh, as it turns out, uh, no, I mean, it was very prescient. And I, I think you uh, read him pretty well. I mean, there were a lot of signs there to begin with that this guy was not a champion of uh, the left or anything like that, that he was going to govern from the same kind of limp center-right austerity place that pretty much every other establishment European politician governs from. Uh, but he was, of course, lionized because he had beaten the evil Marine Le Pen uh, in the, the second round of the election and had forestalled the rise of the far right in France. A little later, I, I want to talk to you about all the ways in which he has actually sped up the rise of the far right in France. <laughs> uh, but for now, why don't you walk us through what's been going on in France for the last couple of weeks up to uh, his big address last night, Macron's big address, where he uh, appeared to concede on some points that maybe he hasn't been going about things in the best way, and yet I don't think really conceded much of anything. Uh, so just take us through from, from the beginning of the Yellow Vest protests uh, to where we are now. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm glad to be vindicated by history. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's always nice. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, uh, yeah, we've had the, the massive Yellow Vest protests, which have been sort of uh, contested over because because people are trying to figure out what, what exactly they mean and what they're, they're really um, aimed against and, and what the actual goals of the people who are engaged in these massive protests are. Um, and, uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's a hodgepodge of things. Of course, there are people out there who, are uh, definitely have sort of what we would consider alt-right views, um, you know, who, who want curves on, on migration and, and everything like that. Uh, you've also got, um, uh, people who are, you know, on the left involved in those protests. You've got people who maybe don't don't identify with any particular political uh, ideology, but are, are sort of just generally disgruntled. Um, I, I think there's been a big sort of push, or maybe not push, but there certainly has been an effort to kind of um, interpret these these protests as a a protest against the the fuel tax, which is sort of the thing that that really um, uh, that, that sparked them off. Um, and it sort of has been read as a, you know, there was a, a piece in the Washington Post, um, I think, and, and a few other uh, sort of establishment outlets that are sort of taking the line of, well, this is what happens when you, uh, when you, when you uh, try and implement ambitious climate change or this legislation or climate change measures. Um, but I mean, I would argue that the protests are, are about much more than the fuel tax. I think the fuel tax is something that, that has set them off. But, um, you know, and we can get into that a little later. Uh, basically, Macron has, for the most part, tried to just ignore the protests and not comment on them um, as they've become increasingly uh, uh, visible on the world stage and embarrassing and, and also, you know, destructive. You know, you've had um, monuments being defaced and, and, and everything. Uh, I think he, he now has, has realized he has to he, he has to address 
this issue in some way that, that the protests are not just going to stop and, and go away, that he has to do something. And yeah, you're, so you're right, he did that. Well, that I think I, I want to actually, because you, you brought that up, and I, I, one of the things I found funny about uh, the last, you know, the last week or so, uh, and this is neither here nor there really, although I think it speaks to Macron's sort of ego, is he like, it seemed like he suddenly remembered that he has a prime minister, once everybody got really pissed off at him and started rioting in the streets, he suddenly was like, hey, I have this other guy I could send out to you know, deal with that and be, get, absorb everybody's anger and I could stay in the, in the background where, you know, this is a guy who can't get enough of putting himself on TV, basically. I mean, he's <laughs> everywhere until things get really bad and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I'm going to let uh, Edouard Philippe uh, handle this because... Uh, you know that'll that'll be that'll go better. And I just thought it was funny that that you know all of a sudden he he turns invisible, uh, and you know he's hiding out in the palace somewhere while he sends his poor schlub PM out to take everybody's rage. Well, you know it's classic uh, Jupiterian uh, <laughs> sort of sort of stuff there. You know um, he uh, he he rules from on high, and instead of uh, going down himself, he you know sends some sort of uh, messenger, maybe a Hermes. Uh, style figure perhaps um or whatever Her mercury is hermes mercury yeah and, hermes and and mercury, yes right. yeah yeah so um <laughs> yeah i mean it does kind of yeah you're right and and now he you know he's done this speech and you know what, what do you say he said um you know i i I realize now that some of the statements I have made have, have hurt your feelings, as if yeah, <laughs> he's like, massive. There's, there's no material harm here. It's just that I was I was mean to you, and I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, baby. I didn't mean it. I, uh, <laughs> let's go back to the way things used to be. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, these protests have been uh, preceded by a, uh, a a massive drop in his. Uh, approval ratings, um, which I, I can't, I don't know the exact timeline uh, of of when they dropped, but they were at something about like 20, 25, 26 percent, I think, just before the um, the protest started. So he is widely lower uh, within France, <laughs> um, and within only a year as well. I mean, um, that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, even for a French president. I mean, French presidents usually go through a a, a period of deep unpopularity at some point but he's sped up the process it seems like yeah. i thought i mean so, i think know, it's been a steady decline except for um <laughs> you know ironically maybe enough except for uh the brief he's gotten brief kicks i think every time he's been seen to stand up to donald trump on something <laughs> but right. other than that it's been like a pretty it's been a pretty steady downhill roll uh, since he got elected, he came in on a high because everybody was, again, relieved. I think that Marine Le Pen was not the president of France, uh, and and then you know, but from there it's been you know basically straight downhill. Well, it's good to see that. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, he, he has like one other innovation. You know, he's he's managed to 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 speed up. Uh, he wants to streamline Parliament, and you know. Uh, Make make every other part of uh, a, a French kind of politics uh, faster and more innovative, and and so obviously he uh, he has streamlined his uh, disapproval ratings as well. You know, going straight <laughs> to the ground. Um, so you know, good good for him. I mean, yeah. And, and what what else has happened? Uh, Macron did actually postpone the the fuel tax in in um, in, in uh, response to the protests, uh, and he also um, now has done the speech where he's basically. 
come out and he's kind of uh, he's sort of handing out an olive branch to the protesters because uh, just getting rid of the fuel tax or at least uh, delaying it was obviously not enough to quell public anger. So he has uh, come out with with uh, new promises to um, uh, raise minimum wage and uh, cut taxes for uh, pensioners, I believe. And I think there's some other things in there as well. Um, so, you, you know, I mean, uh, to some extent it is a – you know, the protests have worked, um, but, you know, Macron's also still sticking to his original program, which is, uh, you know, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to bring back the wealth tax, for example, he doesn't want to raise taxes on the rich, um, which is, well, we'll see how that's going to go. Right. Um, I mean, because now the, the French deficit is going to grow, uh, it's going to go beyond the EU rules, uh, beyond what the EU rules allow it, which is going to create all, uh, a whole host of problems for not just, France, but potentially um, Europe as a whole, because suddenly, I mean, is is the EU going to crack down on Macron? Are they going to crack down on France the way they did with uh, with other countries whose deficits exploded, or are they going to let him go? And if so, what are these other countries going to think? Um, well, right, and you know, you... I mean, Macron's sort of the last person standing defending the EU now that Merkel's, you know, uh, Angela Merkel's on her way out, if not. You know, she's got a couple of years left, but she's got an end date to her chancellorship. And uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, there's the the EU, uh, if people aren't following this other story, the EU is cracking down or trying to on Italy for yeah. doing basically the same thing that, that I think, Branko, you're right, is probably going to happen in France now uh, for, you know, boosting its deficit target for 2019 uh, in order to jumpstart the Italian economy, which has been stagnant since uh, the crash, I mean, in 2008. Uh, so, you know, the, the, there's a question whether there's going to be a double standard here. When, when Italy does it, the EU has to step in. But when Macron does it, and Macron is sort of the champion of a united Europe, are they going to treat him the same way? Or are they going to let him off, off the hook? Right, and it's also a it's a it's a Western European country. It's it's one of the most recognizable and 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 powerful Western European countries. And so there's a real question of well, okay, is there are there two rules in the EU? Are there are there rules for the sort of uh, you know the grubby little countries that the EU sort of doesn't doesn't really think of itself and, and sort of looks down on uh, the EU leadership anyway? Um, or uh, is there is it true there is you know, a one rule for all. Um, and, and you're right. Yeah. I mean, Italy, uh, I think today or yesterday just, just said basically that Macron's speech is actually, is actually helping them because now they'll be able to make the case that, well, they, if, if Macron can, um, can, can boost spending and, and, and make the deficit, uh, grow beyond the rules, then why can't they? Um, so there could be, you know, there could be potentially a, a, a wider European, Political crisis that that um, emerges out of this, but you know, I mean, that's probably a little little early to say. But I mean, that's I mean, they, Salvini said uh, Matteo Salvini, the deputy PM, who is probably the guy who's really running Italy, uh, a couple of days ago, I think, said, uh, you know, as the protests were going on, I think it was over the weekend when they kind of kicked back into high gear, and he he said, "See, this is what we're trying to avoid here by you know upping our budget, upping our deficit target." Uh, so they, yeah, they've been kind of pointing at France for for a few days now and saying this is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is that uh, suddenly for, for guys like Macron, people who are uh, leaders who are uh, you know quote, quote, 
quote unquote centrist. Um, I would argue that Macron is not even centrist, but just outright right wing. Um, they they have no real goals for uh, uh, what they want to do beyond just sort of the typical neoliberal austerity um, policies, which is just cut cut uh, government spending, lower taxes, particularly on the rich, um, and uh, you know. Uh, Fire public sector workers, uh, labor law liberalization. Okay. Uh, this stuff has always been, has been shown to never really work at actually getting out of a crisis. It's historically there's just example after example of this actually deepening or even creating crises. But um, you know, Macron for for someone who considers himself a a genius and and someone with an intellect far beyond um, you know most humans, which is not even a joke. That's that's like. <laughs> what he really believes <laughs> you know uh, obviously uh his his in- intelligence only goes so far his his great intelligence only goes so far if it cannot read the lessons of the previous 30 years um and and or even of the last you know years the guy who literally won against a neo-fascist and is now implementing the exact policies that that lead to the rise of fascism, or historically led to the rise of fascism. So, uh, I think that's a good place to to go here. I I, I want to because you, I mean, you've already made or started to make the argument that uh, the narrative that's come up around this, which is, oh, see, look what happens when you try to do environmental taxes; people get upset, and uh, I guess we just have to let the planet cook itself. Uh, that's the, the the narrative you're seeing in you know mainstream. Even not just uh, on the right, which where it's been very prevalent, but I mean, I've seen ostensibly just like wire service places picking this up, like Reuters, uh, you know, running this story in that framework. Like, oh, people are mad about environmental taxes, and I guess they're bad. And and the problem is much deeper than that. And, and this is to me, and uh, you've you've already said this, and I've been saying this. It's the straw that that broke the camel's back at best. I mean, the, these these gas tax hikes. Uh, so talk about some of the things that have been part of the Macron agenda over the last year and a half or so. Uh, and you know, wh- what is the argument that What's really happening here is French people, French workers in particular, have been just beaten down by this guy, immiserated, while uh, you know the the wealthy elite have been showered with uh, gifts, and it's it's that we've gotten to the point where that's just it, he's pushed people too far. It's not just one thing, but it's a an accumulation of things. Yeah, I mean. From almost the very beginning that we took office, uh, Macron has been uh, pursuing a policy of, of fairly radical neoliberalism in terms of you know uh, cutting the wealth tax, cutting corporation taxes. Uh, there was a he got rid of a, a tax on um, financial services uh, with the with the aim of this is always the perennial, perennial idea of, of the uh, neoliberal right and, and centers that um, if only you can attract 
investment if you can if you can just make things more attractive for uh, wealthy people and large corporations um, even those who don't necessarily do anything particularly productive if you can if you can lure them uh, into your country that that'll solve the uh, whatever economic problems you have and, and that's that was one part of it but then the other part of it was also he has been um, he, he slashed uh, uh, local government taxes and and um, and government spending um, across the board. He has uh, he first pushed through um, a bunch of changes to the labor laws uh, that were very contentious. Uh, France has has very uh, uh, strong protections um, for for workers, um, which Macron is not a fan of. He thinks it's too onerous for business uh, people, for business leaders, um, and and since then, since pushing those through, he's also tried to um, uh, he's been he's been sort of uh, trying to be the the Reagan or Thatcher of France to an extent, where he's tried to break the backs of of, of the unions. Um, he's taken on the the, the France's rail unions, um, tried to take away some of their their privileges, which they um, uh, obviously were not happy about. Uh, has led to um, weeks of strikes, um, uh, so it was things were pretty chaotic even before before this. Um, you know, at, at the same time as well, uh, you know, he has while he has gone um, easy uh, on the rich. Um, you know, I, it's his his tax changes are actually meant to, uh, or, or you know, if you actually look at them, they're going to uh, raise the burden um, for a lot of. Uh, Middle income and a lot of a lot of poor people as well. Um, as sort of combined with his general sense of there's this kind of feeling that Macron doesn't really uh, care about the poor. They mainly cares about the rich, which is you know uh, <laughs> not just because of his policies, but he is he's not a good communicator. You know there are all these incidents of him you know talking to disgruntled people in the street where he sort of chides them for um, you know not not uh, if they can't find a job it's because they uh, did something wrong um, you know telling them to put on a tie or something you know very sort of condescending rhetoric so it's I think it's all these different things right there was um, the there was the one guy who challenged him. Uh, I forget how long ago this was, a couple months ago, and he, he was his response was, uh, you know, the, the guy said, I haven't been able to find work, I've been struggling, what can you do for somebody like me? And he was like, I could go across the street right now and find ten jobs. <laughs> like, okay, dude. <laughs> Just incredibly tone deaf. I mean, yeah, it, I mean, it's almost as bad as, you know, the, the Clinton uh, uh, deplorables thing, um, but even worse, because you have this... This guy, who, by the way, you know, a child of, of the elite and, and privilege, he, he Macron, for all his anti-establishment bluster during his uh, campaign, he, he is a product of, of the French establishment. He went to the um, to the, the 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 fancy French school, which I I've forgotten the name of now, but it's the basically the uh, uh, factory for France's political elite. It's the it's the place where I think something like four of its past prime ministers, uh, in the in, four of its Five past prime ministers, I should, uh, I should say, have come from uh, most of its civil service comes from. Um, you know, he's a guy who I think people quite uh, understandably feel like is out of touch and does not understand uh, their um, their particular suffering. Um, you know, uh, it, it's sort of like all these different things have combined to to make him this hated, and that's just on his economic policies. Then you look at a lot of the other things he's done, and I mean. 
you know, those, those are uh, just as concerning, especially if you're, if you're worried about, you know, a neo-fascist taking over in, in France. Um, you know, Macron has only um, accelerated um, the, uh, the, I guess, uh, dissolution of, of um, individual liberties in the country. So this is an issue that, I mean, there's actual research now to support the notion that one of the things that turns people toward the far right, toward populism, that, that particular flavor of populism, uh, is the immiseration that they suffer as a result of austerity politics. Uh, I mean, this is something that's seemed obvious uh, to many people on the left, I think, for a while now. Uh, but they're actually starting to develop a body of research to back this sense up. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about the connection between what just seems like, uh, and, and you know Europe better than I do, but it seems like a, uh, almost a continent-wide obsession uh, with austerity as and and neoliberalism, uh, and the rise of uh, th- these far right movements, some of which, m- many of which, I guess, the epicenter you could argue is sort of in uh, sort of central and eastern Europe, places that are part of the EU but are kind of on the hinterlands of the EU, and so they feel the the pain uh, of continent-wide austerity harder than, say, people in Germany do. But we've seen the rise of a far right in Germany again, which is great. That's really historically a good thing. Uh, And Austria, again, historically a good thing. In Italy, uh, even in Spain now, where, you know, they're they're under a socialist minority government and, and, you know, their far right party, the Vox party, had seemed to be out of politics, they've suddenly surged back into uh, relevance. They won, I think, 12 seats in the Andalusian regional election, and now they're polling at higher numbers nationally. So this is happening everywhere, and I think, uh, you know, even in even in a place like Spain that's uh, run uh, by a, a left or center-left government, uh, it's still, it's sort of, because the EU is interconnected enough for these other countries to feel what's going on uh, in their neighbor, you know, in their neighborhood, regardless of whether it's actually going on there. Um, Just, you know, talk about maybe where the austerity fixation comes from and then, you know, how it, how it boosts these far right voices. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, there's always going to be particular um, strands of, of thinking and events that influences uh, the rise of the far right in, in individual countries. You know, for example, Spain. I think the the Catalan independence movement um, had uh, had some role in, in the rise of of, of Vox, and um, and also Vox has this whole sort of uh, anti-feminist message as well that that they've been writing. Um, but it would be, I think, myopic to argue that those are simply the only reasons that you know that that uh, Vox has risen in, in Spain, and, and also you know, especially given the 
pattern of this happening across Europe. I mean, I I do not know enough about East uh, about about EU the history of the EU to to explain why or how these uh, neoliberal assumptions became part of it. But um, I think that it is an example of just the general um, shift to the uh, austerity neoliberal kind of vision since the 80s broadly um, around the world. I mean, that, that was really the decade where it was sort of the, the end of the post-war order in, in many countries. It was in the U.S., it was in the U.K., it certainly was uh, in my home country of New Zealand, um, and where governments started to turn to uh, neoliberal policies to, to uh, as a sort of solution to, to what ailed um, the Western world. And it's, it's not exactly a controversial statement to say that those policies have increased people's misery on the whole. First, you know, uh, in certain countries... Uh, swelling the ranks of the poor, um, while also making poverty a more kind of uh, structural feature uh, of economies in certain countries. Certainly, it was that way in New Zealand. Um, and and the idea that what what uh, has to be done is is the reduction of deficits, the uh, debt cutting, lowering taxes, all these things. I think. It's been the reaction to this has been muted for for um, a while. There's always been opposition to this stuff. There's always been anger towards it, um, but it hasn't flared up uh, in the decades since since these um, assumptions have become sort of um, de rigueur until now. And and there's probably there's a variety of reasons for that. I mean, um, you know, the way that the EU sort of uh, bashed on on Greece, um, for example, you know that that I think uh, obviously um, made people uh, it, it created a lot of anger in Greece, of course, um, but I think it also created a lot of anger in, in uh, among uh, uh, other parts of the European uh, European population. People saw the way that um, the EU, the sort of what what to them is a very unaccountable entity. Um, uh, was interfering in other governments, in other countries' um, sovereignty, and and um, and also in a very unfair way. I mean, you know, the, the 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 Greeks, for example, were being blamed for um, uh, the, this this uh, economic crisis that they were facing, um, but that was partly a a, a product of um, also or mostly a product of, of the the wider financial crisis um, that had nothing to do with sort of what the average Greek person um, was spending or how much uh, you know debt they might have been in, um, and yeah, so I think I think right now there is a. Worldwide, there is a general disgruntlement towards the political elite that, that um, has come from these policies, these neoliberal policies, and this neoliberal worldview that that we have sort of been living in for for years. Not really that long either. It's only you know, um, if we take the eighties as a starting point, you know, it's only been about thirty now, close to forty years um, that uh, that we've been living in this sort of neoliberal uh, global regime. But people uh, are pissed off at it, and I think. That is, even if people don't always articulate that that is the reason, there is a gen- all all these all these movements are feeding off a general um, uh, anti elitist uh, or anti elite um, feeling, you know, um, and and of course they also have been very smart in using the um, 
the the migration issue as a as a wedge as a sort of scapegoat to um, to uh, inflame people's anger and, and get them riled up because of course it's easy, the easiest thing is to um, you know you if there are suddenly a lot more uh, brown or, or black faces um, that you see in your neighborhood um, and and at the same time there's rising poverty and unemployment and, and various other problems crime. Um, it's very easy to, to sort of just point to this influx of people and say that this is this is what's the matter. Um, uh, well, and I think it's I mean, it's essential for far right parties like like uh, you know the ones that are in power, let's say in Hungary and and Austria. Uh, it's almost essential to point the finger at migrants because once those parties get into power their economic agenda is not that much different from the pro-business center-right. I mean, this is happening in real time in Brazil, where Jair Bolsonaro is, uh, you know, a far-right demagogue, but he's going to, he's already, like, a, 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 putting together an economic team that is going to follow very orthodox center-right kind of pro-business, screw-everybody-else economic policy, just like the, the the guy, you know, Michel Temer, the guy he's taking over for. They don't have... This is why I think, you know, right-wing populism is a is a sort of the fool's gold of, of people's <laughs> anger about these policies, because they don't have a different agenda economically. They have the same policy agenda uh, as the, the, you know, the austerity center-right guys that they're railing against. So instead, they have to point at some other cause, and that usually winds up being human beings being wired up the way they are. It usually winds up being the people who look different or who practice a different religion or come from a different place and are scary and, and unknown and other. Yeah, I mean, and this has been the playbook of the Republican Party in the U.S. for uh, a very long time. And certainly since um, since the Reagan uh, Revolution or Restoration, whatever you want to call it, uh, where the GOP has been running on this sort of um, faux populist line for a long time. That, that you know it's the liberal elites are the problem. We are the ones who are taking who who care about you and care about your problems. But of course, uh, the GOP is a far more uh, the, the GOP is a party that 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 has just absolute disdain for the poor um and uh, as we're seeing now it's sort of main goal is to um to shower uh, the very wealthiest the most powerful people in in the country with with as many um uh, as much uh uh, treasures as possible, uh, while at the same time punishing the poor for for being poor. Um, but they've always been able to mask this uh, modus operandi by by uh, you, you know utilizing these these wedge issues, these sort of social issues, abortion, um, you know, very uh, coded racism, um, affirmative uh, action. now immigration. Yeah, affirmative action. Exactly. The reason that you don't have a job is because it was this. Uh, unqualified African American person who took it. It's not because um, we have uh, helped to destroy the economy and to, um, to to slash public sector jobs. No, no, it's 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 black people that are the problem. Um, and so this, you're right. I mean, and it's a, it's been very successful for the GOP. It's they've been able to mask their um, anti, uh, well, you know, let, let's just call it for shorthand plutocratic policies. They were able to mask them by appealing to the kind of base resentments um, of people, which 
which always will be there, but if you consciously and, and ardently try and sort of inflame them, um, you know, uh, it can be a very powerful force as we've seen historically and as we see uh, right now. I want to talk about um, what you think can be done to arrest this situation or the, the sort of the the austerity fueled rise of the the far right i'm very pessimistic about this and the reason is i think that uh, a big part of the reason why things are exploding now and and it's sort of sweeping you know far the far right is sweeping across europe and uh, it's gaining a lot of traction in the united states and we're seeing it elsewhere now you know sort of uh, gaining hold uh, is because uh, you're right i think to to say that the roots of of the austerity program go back to the 80s but the real pain i think that people are feeling now goes back to the 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 crash in 2008 and the fact yeah. that everywhere i mean the united states uh kind of embraced keynesianism a little bit after 2008 europe it seems like almost uniformly did not and if ever there was a time for governments to say okay you know it's time to drop the fixation on deficits and cutting taxes on the wealthy and actually do some deficit spending and boost the economy and and do something that's going to help workers that was it and they didn't do it by and large and what you've had as a result is a, a a generation basically of people if you were born you know a couple of years on either side of say 1990 you came of age at a time when the economy was cratered and you're barely you know, you're still struggling to sort of get out of that hole which was not caused by you or anything that you did but it's affecting your life and your ability to uh, you know take care of yourself and put money away and have health care and uh, start a family if you want to all of these things that past generations have been able to do that just aren't there for for people of that age bracket i guess millennials i don't know what millennial is really to be honest uh but uh yeah and and then you're constantly i mean you know there's sort of the the added on thing which i i maybe isn't that serious but you're bombarded by stories in the media about oh millennials are screwing this up and millennials are screwing that up and if you just stop eating avocado toast you could have a four-bedroom mansion you know in in five years uh, you know all this sort of industry that's designed i think basically to tell baby boomers it's not your fault uh it's their fault um and it just seems like what we've done is we've created a lost generation that's very susceptible to the messages of uh, the populist right because of these struggles that they're going through. And I'm not sure what you do to to get them back on track. Or you know, you have to. I think you have to write their ship before you know you can you can kind of diminish the the power of that the the far right message. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you're right that the global financial crisis was the the main catalyst for all this. Um, in the sense of yes, people were feeling pain before then that had been increased by the neoliberal reforms of the '80s, but it was the the crisis that really um, that that touched a whole uh, wide um, uh, uh, collection of people that that uh, who who had 
sort of weathered that particular storm. And and now it was suddenly people who had played by the rules their entire life, worked hard, done everything they were supposed to, you know, gone to school, gone the right degrees, uh, gone a good job, and suddenly they were also on the chopping block. Um, you know, and, and and you're right, there is a there is a sort of sense of a lost generation, a a whole um, a, a lot of younger people who. Uh, did the exact same thing. I'm following the path that I've always been told by by every authority figure that I'm meant to do. I'm meant to go to school. I'm meant to get this degree. I'm meant to um, go to university. And instead, what they ended up uh, and, and you know that would be the road to to a good job and a stable uh, stable life, home ownership, yada yada yada. Instead, what they're finding is you know they they um, went through school. They got loaded with uh, with debt. Um, they weren't able to find a job. A or, or if they were, they were able to find a very low paying or um, otherwise inadequate job. Um, you know, a lot of people, obviously there's the perennial joke of, you know, how many um, baristas have master's degrees or whatever. Um, and so the, uh, I, I think there is a sense of, Oh, and also, yeah, forget about homeownership. That's not going to happen. Either. I mean, <laughs> you know, so all these things that people have been promised, you know, if you just play by the rules, um, you will, you will get them. Um, have not come to pass, and not only that, but certainly in Europe and in, in countries like Greece and Spain, um, it then seemed like for the um, mistakes of the most powerful and the most wealthy in the country, um, they were the ones punished. You know, it was uh, the EU mandated these incredibly harsh austerity regimes in these countries that punished ordinary people who, for them, it didn't seem like it was their fault that um, the global um, economy tanked and, and largely it wasn't um but they were the ones who were feeling the brunt of it um you know and and i mean with you know to go back, go back to macron i mean that's sort of the the that on, on steroids right now in, in a sense because macron is not only uh making things tougher for um a lot of the the the, the kind of middle and, and and lower classes but also at the same time he is he is um Allowing the the rich to not share this pain, which I think is what the the fuel tax is really all about. It's you know if you if you I think environmental measures are always going to cause uh, uh, especially the radical ones that we need to prevent the uh, total extinction of, of life on Earth. They they will uh, run against people's living standards. I think that's sort of a thing that um, the left doesn't want to acknowledge, but I think it is true. Um, however, I think people are a lot more conducive to accepting, um, that fact if at the same time there isn't a powerful class of people who are just getting away with, if anything, uh, actually, uh, ha have things better than, better than they had, uh, in, in previous years. So I think to arrest the rise of fascism, I mean, this is a topic that, that, you know, is, is worthy of uh, a thousand um, uh, podcasts anyway. Um, but I mean, I think for, for one, you have to take on the wealthy, you have to, uh, to an extent, flatten um, income disparities um, through through heavy taxation, you, you know, I mean, uh, for the what to get through the crises that, that we are facing right now, it will require government action on a on a scale that we haven't seen um, potentially ever um, and uh, slashing taxes on the wealthy is not going to make that possible especially if if there are if, if there is a sort of 
evergreen panic around deficits um, and 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 the budget. And so, uh, you know, uh, not just as a matter of practicality, though, it's also a matter of fairness. Um, it's it's not letting the most powerful off the hook, um, especially when you know they are a key part of uh, when we talk about climate change, a key part of the the problem. Uh, they're a big reason um, for the, the why emissions um, have been as big as they are. Um, so I think, yeah, basically that that's going to be one element of it. I'm not I'm not uh, going to say that's the only thing that has to happen, but I think a measure of fairness and uh, is is the first step. I think the other thing is as well that you know. The right has always been good at creating enemies, uh, false enemies, you know, migrants, um, uh, people of color, uh, what have you, uh, the liberal elite. But, you know, there, there is true that right now, for all the world's problems that exist, there, there's what, um, like 13 trillion? That might even, I not, might not be, I might be remembering the, the, uh, the number wrong. It might be even as much as 30 trillion. But there's trillions and trillions of dollars of um untaxed wealth just sitting around all over the world and while i think people in the west have sort of uh been okay with that for a long time because what that meant was well okay poverty and uh will just uh, extreme poverty will just exist in in these uh continents like africa that we don't really think about but now suddenly uh people in the west are starting to feel uh, the same sort of um, misery that uh, not not to, at all to the same scale as, as the most impoverished countries in the world, but they are starting to feel this misery a lot more. And it's like, well, you know, ultimately, who 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 is the what is the source of of this suffering? Is it is it migrants or is it a, a an elite that is jealously hoarding wealth that can be used to fund um, massive changes in 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 green infrastructure and just infrastructure in general that that has uh you know been crumbling and not just the u.s but all over the world um uh, uh you know holding this wealth that could be used to alleviate homegrown poverty um in all these countries um so i think that that's another aspect of it is if if uh we need to identify what the actual enemy is it's not migrants it's it's the wealthy who have a disproportionate influence on our political systems all over the world and and who um, I just sort of have this massive store of wealth that they, uh, I get, who knows what the purpose of that is, whether it's just to accumulate forever or whether it's something a lot more sinister, God knows. Um, but yeah, that would be, that would be my sort of starting point. I think, I mean, yeah, one of the arguments that you, you hear, uh, from, I mean, usually comes from the right, but then when you get into sort of internecine left liberal arguments that it comes from the liberals is you can't pay for all of this stuff that you guys want just by taxing the rich and while in a technical sense that might be true in which case you have to talk about why we're so obsessed with deficits and debt uh, and whether that's the really the right way to approach public policy I think you you get at a good point here, which is it's not necessarily that you're going to finance, let's say, universal health care or more immediately and related to this story. You're not going to finance a, a global effort to cut back on carbon emissions and do something about 
climate change just by taxing the rich, but at least you will impart some sense of shared sacrifice. At yeah. least, you know, if you look at great kind of mass mobilizations of the 20th century, and I would think about, let's say, uh, you know, the U.S. getting into World War II, for example, the call wasn't, okay, everybody's got to suck it up and do what they can for the war effort, but oh, by the way, we're going to cut the, you know, capital gains tax by 50% or whatever. Uh, it was everybody's got to pitch in. Everybody's got to do what they can do their part. And people were okay with the pain. You know, the people who were at the mm. lower end of the the economic ladder who were had already been, you know, brutalized by the Great Depression, you didn't see, you know, the rise of... Uh, a lot of opposition. This was a hugely kind of patriotic time for the, in the United States. Uh, and part of the reason was because everybody was pulling on the cart. And there wasn't this carve out for the rich and powerful that they got exempted from sacrificing. And, and I would look yeah. at something like climate change, which is orders of magnitude bigger than anything like that and requires global shared sacrifice. And you talk about, you know, people who are using migrants as a scapegoat migration is only going to get worse i mean the the more this goes on and the more uh drought and displacement we see as a result of climate change the the bigger the migration issue is going to get and the more that's going to feed into the the far right unless you have some kind of epiphany by the, the liberal world elite uh, that what we need to do is stop coddling the rich and start doing something about these things that are that are destroying the planet. And that means everybody. That doesn't mean, you know, oh, uh, gosh, it's it really sucks that a lot of people are fleeing Niger because parts of it are uninhabitable now, but what can you do? Let's cut taxes for the rich again. You know, it's, it's the, the West and the developed world that needs to, it needs to understand that these are our problems as much as they are problems of, of, you know, people in Africa or people in Southern Asia or, or wherever there, there are problems They're everybody's problems and Ooh. everybody's got to, to, you know, pitch in to the effort or they need to be made to pitch in uh, to the effort. Otherwise, you know, this is this is just the beginning. You're just going to see more of this this stuff. You're going to see more people impoverished, more of this kind of competition between the poorest people of Europe and the poorest people of Africa and the migrants who are flooding into, uh, you know, the few places that are still inhabitable. Uh, you know, there's, there's never going to be an end to this unless there's a, there's a fundamental, I think, reordering of, of how we think about the world. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, human beings, contrary to, to the to the opinion of many economists, are not rational. Uh, we know that they, we we do not act in a rational way. Um, otherwise, we would say, "Oh, okay, well, immigration is putting all these uh, pressures on society right now. Um, why don't we uh, alleviate the thing that's actually causing that um, that that mass migration, which is not just you know there there are obviously there are things like wars and um, 
and, and coups and, and, and such, but also climate change is a big part of it, as you say. Um, but and there's even, a, I mean, even some of the wars now are we're getting to the point where they're being caused by climate change. I mean, the you know the, mm. the scarcity of food contributed to uh, you know high food prices contributed to to the Syrian civil war. Um, you're looking. I think we're on the cusp of uh, out and out water wars. In you know, there's a couple of places that that people should be keeping their eyes on for that. You know, I think that increasingly this uh, this other stuff that you're right can, is uh, are are its own kind of generators of displacement and migration are going to start to all still come back to this root thing, which is that we're making uh, big chunks of the planet basically uninhabitable, and we're setting up competitions uh, between you know desperate countries that can't literally can't give their citizens enough clean water uh you know you know they're 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 going to start having to compete with one another over who gets how much you know what part of a river or who gets you know uh what part of a lake or you know things like that yeah. well and as you say uh you know if if this is a war there would not be any question about how do we fund it there would not be any question of well but the deficit it would be whenever there's a war whenever there's a direct threat uh, from a a foreign uh, invader, let's say there there's no question of deficits. Um, uh, and and I mean, here's one example. Uh, and during the depression, uh, all of Roosevelt's uh, deficits they ran up during the New Deal were less than just uh, two years of spending during World War One. Um, so <laughs> when when it's exact and and you know so of course it was once World War Two came around that that was the thing that finally pulled the u.s out, out of uh depression because it was mass public spending it was a huge basically a public work scheme on a national level where, where it was full employment everyone was doing something um to you know for this one shared national goal of uh of um defeating uh the japanese and and the germans um a goal that was you know uh in hindsight is relatively uncontroversial um I would say, um, but uh, yeah, and, and and you're right. So, and I think people, I mean, certainly in the U.S., there's a lot of uh, kind of. I think people see through this deficit talk increasingly because they realize this deficit talk is only ever brought up when it's um, about a program that would help the majority of people. When it's about passing the um, biggest uh, defense budget in, uh, in in recent history, it's uh, it's mysteriously absent. And and it was the same, you know, in, in uh, France. Macron, while he was slashing um, uh, taxes and, and slashing government spending, uh, he wanted to cut military spending, and uh, the military threw a fit. And, and so then he actually promised that he would increase military spending beyond what it was um, at the time. Um, so there's a very lopsided um, application of this kind of concern for the deficit that, that I think just adds to the anger that people already feel, the, the anger at the the lopsided nature of, of who is asked to sacrifice and who isn't. So my last question, um, do you think uh, Macron survives this term and do you think he gets reelected? Uh, and if not, are we looking at President Le Pen? Are we looking at something worse? <laughs> are we looking at something um, better, which seems, uh, because I'm a pessimist, seems like uh, probably not. But <laughs> what's your what, what's your prediction? Um, I, I could see him surviving 
um, you know, the full term. Um, although, I mean, it, it depends. It de- it's going to depend on whether he keeps insisting on, on this sort of hard-headed uh, austerity program, or this, this unbalanced austerity program, and whether he insists on continuing to antagonize, um, you know, unions and, and the, the most vulnerable people in French society. Um, I, but I could see him surviving. I, I don't know if he would run for a second term. My theory is that if, if, uh, if he gets into his term, he will just... Um, uh, step down and say I'm not going to run again, and he'll probably go and cash out. And <laughs> Having a, accomplished a bank. everything I intended to accomplish in one term, <laughs> there was no need for a second. I actually just watched that episode the other day uh, to, to mourn the passing of a, a great uh, statesman, uh, George H. W. Bush. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I think he would. I honestly think it would, he he could just uh, and and he will cash out and work at a bank or you know take take a job somewhere in some very high paying um lucrative industry because that's not only sort of now what every <laughs> former uh national leader seems to do sure in an investment world. house or something yeah well, i have I mean, to say when i when, when you from. said he will work at a bank i pictured him at a teller window <laughs> <laughs> may i help no, you sir I think- <laughs> he's he's well connected enough that he's gonna he's gonna land in a very very large soft pillow filled with cash um, instead of uh, instead of uh, feathers. Uh, so yeah, he'll be he'll be fine. I, I think part of the one of the patterns of, of so many uh, national leaders now is that um, once they leave, they sort of really stop giving a shit about anything but their own. Um, uh, kind of uh, advancement in their own uh, wealth, and they're kind of like, well, okay, doesn't really doesn't really matter anymore. I mean, I, I, I uh, in some ways, you could you could if you were really conspiratorial, you could see um, Macron's uh, tax cutting uh, as an almost an anticipatory move for when he eventually moves back to the private sector. Because I mean, he was he was a, a at, the, at Rothschild, um, but before he became the um, the president, so. I'd, I'd be very shocked if they didn't welcome him with open sure, arms. Yeah, well, you would think. My my yeah. theory is that he's going to go back to the FSB because he's actually a Russian active measure. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, we we have actually forgotten to mention the uh, the thing on the line and all this stuff, which is this is not disgruntlement at political lead or, or imbalanced austerity. Or, right. It's, or, it's or Vladimir Putin. Putin. Yep. Yeah, it's Putin. It's it's Putin. It's always been Putin. And if we can just uh, have the power to censor Facebook and Twitter and and various other uh, social media, then we will be able to prevent. We people won't be pissed off anymore. They um, they'll just you know they'll keep not being able to afford uh, their food and, and 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 their rent, and they'll keep being jobless. But they they won't uh, they won't have something to be to to aim their anger at. They'll just sort of be. Be angry in a vacuum and just stew at home. That's, um, that sounds good. I mean, you know, why not? What could go wrong there? I mean, just having people <laughs> sit and stew alone for hours every day about their their lot in life that couldn't lead to anything bad. No, it my, like I a mean, very my response, society. my honestly, my response to to that narrative, which has been uh, omnipresent during the yellow vest thing, that this is all being orchestrated by Vladimir Putin, is. Like, if you're going to go down that road, then Emmanuel Macron is obviously a Russian agent. 
right? I mean, like, if the, the line is always Putin wants chaos in Europe, and who's causing the chaos? I mean, it's it's Macron and all these center-right austerity fiends who are causing the chaos. Ergo, they must be the ones who are working for Putin. There's no other explanation to me. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the argument uh, whenever the far right takes power somewhere in Europe, right? It's like, oh, this he, they were brought in by Putin because here's, here's like five Twitter bots that we found uh, <laughs> that have been tweeting about it or something. Um, or like, yeah, uh, so by that logic, surely Macron is also a Putin agent. Also, I mean, have you ever noticed Macron, you know, there's a, there's a similarity in their, in their faces, uh, Macron Ooh, and Putin. And oh, have you that... ever seen them in the same place at the same time? I, uh, Probably, but, uh, yeah, but probably. let's just for the purpose of this argument. You know, a, a clone maybe or a distant relative, something like that. I like that. the clone I idea. Think, I think we could be on to something here. Yeah, yeah. They, they cloned him, but they were, they, you know, were able to alter her genetic code so he, he has some hair um <laughs> that, that was the one improvement they made and they were like what if we had putin what if we had a guy who clearly aspires to authoritarianism but he was also just on a personal level insufferable um and and <laughs> yeah fed, completely fed yeah. yeah exactly yeah <laughs> They're like, this will be the this will be the thing that really uh, pisses people off. We just have to somehow get him elected. Um, <laughs> truly, it's an amazing uh, project, to be honest. Uh, I, I'm surprised that Russia is able to foment such um, uh, and, and create these these uh, elaborate uh, schemes while the country itself is just uh, also subtly, slowly imploding. Well, <laughs> um, you know, they have their ways. They're they're they're, they're Slav. You know, they have their Slav ways. Yeah, of course. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm very intimately familiar with uh, with, with the doing. Exactly, of the exactly. <laughs> See, I, I mean, you know, uh, there's been long-standing rumors that I myself and the rest of the Jacobin crew are also Putin plans. Well, so you know, there's uh, I, which I will not comment on. I think you know, it would be irresponsible not to speculate about these things. <laughs> I agree. It would be irresponsible not to weave um, insane, decades-long <laughs> conspiracy theories. Uh, I, if anything, that's what we need more of. <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, Bronco, das Vidania. Um, <laughs> thank you for coming on the show, and uh, uh, we'll—I'll have you back the next time somebody in Europe screws up. Thank you. I, yeah, I, I look forward to it. <laughs> Thanks, Bronco. Thanks. While we were recording this, uh, there was an incident in Strasbourg, France, uh, that is very much still breaking as I'm saying this, uh, where at least one person has been killed in a shooting uh, in the Strasbourg Christmas market. Uh, this has a lot of the hallmarks of a an ISIS-inspired terrorist attack. Uh, but we don't really know any more than the, the details, the very scant details that have come out uh, in the media so far, which is at least one person shot, at least one gunman. Uh, the attacker or attackers are still at large, uh, so obviously thoughts and, and you know good wishes, best wishes go out to the people of Strasbourg and the victims of uh, this attack. Uh, we had a lot more to discuss in this interview, including a whole line of questions on climate change and whether Macron's fuel taxes are really the way to go about fighting it. Uh, I don't believe that they are, but uh, it, the austerity discussion was going on, going so well that I figured uh, we just needed to stick on that and we just plum ran out of time to talk about anything else. Uh, so that'll be for another time, I guess. 
Anyway, I do want to thank again Branko Marchetic for coming on the program. Uh, Branko, as I say, is a staff writer with Jacobin. I will put a link to his Twitter feed in the show description. So if you want to check out what he's doing, that's the place to do it. Uh, Until next time, as always, thanks for listening. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.